We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willers getting booking the guests. And the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, lots going on as uh, we head uh, into the new year. Some people still off, some people still enjoying the holiday, uh, and others slowly getting back into it. New nano, uh, nanos, or nanos, new nanos research is out, and uh, guess what our number one priorities are heading into or top priorities heading into 2024. Uh, cost of living issues, whether it's groceries, whether it's fuel, whether it's rent, uh, housing issues. How do you buy one? How do you get into one? Is home ownership dead? And healthcare. These are all the major issues, uh, from Nanos, uh, and, as we head into this new year, uh, many people hoping for optimism and, and, and hope and all that sort of thing, but the problems still exist. And uh, clearly what they're also seeing at Nanos is great generational shifts. And the young audience that once supported our prime minister are now listing uh, things like health care, housing, and the cost of living as their most important issues. 61% uh, support immigration, but say that it is too high and that it is greatly affecting the housing crisis and the healthcare crisis that is already here. And, you know, we were talking about this, and I remember during the height of the global pandemic, we saw the weak links in our supposedly perfect healthcare system. And this is nothing to do with the great men and women that work in the healthcare system every day to try to keep us all healthy and, and, and upright and retaining fluids. This has got to be due with a system that is greatly flawed and it is not been in fine form for, I would say, close to 50 years, decades and decades and decades. And I think Canadians have this perceived uh, idea of what the Canadian healthcare system is all about until, of course, they have to use it. And um, and then it's a different story. So post-pandemic, you know, everybody was getting together. The prime minister's meeting with all the premiers. We want action. We got to fix this. We And it honestly looked like things were turning around. And then all of a sudden, after the pandemic uh, ease, and, and, and restrictions are lifted, we have 1.1 million more Canadians in Canada than we did at this time last year. So when you're only building 200 and, I don't know, less than 250,000 houses a year, when your healthcare system's already stretched to the max, what the heck are you doing? And it's not like Canadians don't support immigration. Most of us are immigrants. I'm a first-generation Canadian. My mother wasn't born here. So, you know, it's amazing how this has gotten so out of hand as this country has just taken uh, an incredible, an incredible uh, steer to the left. And on that note, Nano is also saying Canadians are more likely to want a federal election now or sometime in 2024, rather than waiting until 2025, because we're all riding inside a slow-motion train wreck. And who wants to continue to go through this for the next year and a half? Well, we wait for Justin to polish his, polish his shoes. 
So, you know, again, um, you know, the the prime minister called an election during the height of a global pandemic when nobody wanted one, when there were other major concerns, like how do we find a vaccine to jab in our arm? He calls an election to try to get a majority government instead gets a smaller one than he had before. He failed. So when no one wants an election, he's calling one to save the to save the planet. To save the country. And then when that didn't work, he comes up with a deal with the NDP. Now, when everybody wants an election, when everybody wants change, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, You know, I don't know. (laughs) Can we be any more out of touch with the average citizenry of the day from this person who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth? And uh, enjoying their vacation in uh, Jamaica right now as ex-wife or whatever Sophie is posting pictures. So, you know, just absolutely, you know, absurd what we are going through and uh, the bus we are all riding on. Well, the prime minister is, I don't know, driving with his hands on the wheel. All right. What else we got? Uh, The U.S. confirms that the Shifa hospital uh, in Gaza that was hit by a rogue fire. Remember that way back when it was, in fact, a Hamas command center and used to uh, at least house a couple or a few of uh, the hostages now u.s intelligence confirmed so uh can we move on from that and uh again at the end of the day for me it's not about palestinians versus israelis it's not about a muslim versus jews it's not about left versus right it's about freedom and democracy versus authoritarian and terrorism so what do you want take your pick me i'm all for democracy and freedom All right, as covered in Hamilton's own Bay Observer, the renaming of Dundas Square in Toronto may have come about after a less than thorough review process. And obviously, in a uh, post-George Floyd uh, world, uh, many, uh, many questioning names in in places, statues, what have you, Dundas, obviously uh, in the the spotlight as well, whether it's the town, the street, the square. And you might remember that uh, just before Christmas, the city of Toronto uh, renamed or voted to uh, change the name of uh, Young Dundas Square and then actually picked another name and 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 went with that name without any really sort of uh, consultation from the public. I think a lot of people found that uh, uh, surprising. But then as we find out uh, in, the, in the headline in the Bay Observer suggests, evidence mounting the Toronto staff ignored credible information that exonerated Henry Dundas. Staff seemed intent on the name change regardless of the facts. And to talk more about all of this, John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer and here now john thank you for the time you hope hope you're doing well doing fine scott nice to be with you uh john i remember when this first happened and you know dundas is uh not only about dundas square it's uh, an awfully long road it's it got a town uh, in hamilton in regard to all of that uh, which i guess officially isn't dundas anymore but still the people uh, believe that it is i i think when this uh, the name of the square changed many were surprised but then we start hearing that maybe a, a less than thorough review process happened here what are your thoughts as you examine this well, you're right. It, it did happen in the wake of the George Floyd uh, murder, and and there was this great cry for, uh, uh, you know, from uh, uh, various uh, activist groups for uh, reconsideration of some of these historical names. 
Uh, Egerton Ryerson was another one where there was really some serious mm -hmm. doubt as to whether he was guilty of being the architect of residential schools. Quite a bit of evidence that he that he in fact was a a major ally uh, of uh, First Nations. But in the case of Dundas, he was a the, the the you know he was an abolitionist. I don't think anybody uh, can argue that he wasn't an abolitionist because uh, the records uh, back in Scotland show that he was. His his sin, it would appear, was uh, uh, he amended a motion that was calling for the abolition of slavery by inserting the word gradual. And the reason he did it was because the motion had no hope whatsoever of passing. And by inserting the word gradual, he was able to get it passed. And, uh, you know, so so that's how it all started. And there was a great debate. But in the case of Toronto, staff, uh, you know, council was presented with a big uh, petition, 14,000 names uh, to change the name of Dundas Street. It was kind of a Me Too response to something that was going on in Scotland. And staff were asked to, first of all, research the issue and then come back with recommendations as to whether a name change was appropriate or not. Staff somehow took that and, and completely perverted what was being asked and, and basically put a process in place to, uh, to simply make the name change. They relied on uh, some research that was uh, later very much discredited by a number of uh, you know very serious scholars, who, uh, and and now it appears that um, staff actually knew that there was uh, some very serious doubt as to whether this was a justified move, and uh, they simply didn't share it with council and went ahead with the name change or with the recommendation for the name change. Um, don't you think, John, that council could kind of do, each councillor could kind of do their own research on this? And it just takes a couple of Google searches to find out a little bit more. Are you surprised that the wool could be pulled over so quickly? Well, I, I think in part it, there was there was some of that. But I, I think, quite frankly, there was, a, you know, it was a bit of a virtue signaling exercise. And I think mm -hmm. some of these members of council uh, looking at a 14,000 uh, word uh, uh, name pe petition. Uh, I, I think it was, you know, it was the, it was 2020. It was the wake of the, there was a lot of atmosphere going on yeah. in, in communities everywhere. Here in Hamilton, we kicked the police out of our school board in the wake of the George Floyd. So everybody was trying to look good and and feel like they were doing something. And I think I think the Hamil or the Toronto Council just got caught up in this. I, I think there were a number of progressives on there that, that liked the idea, the the whole anti-colonial thing that you keep hearing about, and uh, it it just kind of got a momentum of its own. Um, to answer your question, no, I don't think many councillors in in any city do much original research. So I think, you know, I'm not surprised that that didn't happen, but I think they did have a right to trust staff uh, to do a, a thorough job and, and to be even handed. And uh, there's pretty strong evidence that not only were they not even handed, but they were in some ways uh, hmm. uh, being a bit deceptive. What do you think uh, bothers uh, Ontarians, Canadians most about this? Do you think it's the, the cost of this experience, the cost in order to make this all happen? Because that's what came up first, not whether the facts were, were correct or not. It was how much is this going to cost? Or is it the lack of facts here? 
Well, I, you know, I think for most of us who don't live in Toronto, the, the 13, $13 million is a, is a big number, but we're not Toronto taxpayers. So I, I think the fact that uh, that this whole thing was kind of ginned up and and pushed through, I, I think for anybody outside of Toronto, I think that's the issue is, you know, you expect uh, staff to behave in an even-handed manner. And, uh, you know, the I mean, our whole system is based on a certain amount of trust. Certainly, for people in Toronto, uh, the thirteen uh, million would would be an issue, and it it looks like they, you know, just the way they handled the renaming of Young Dundas Square, um, they they almost did it. You know, it, it seemed like in a matter of a few hours, yeah. and resulted in two of the people involved in that project just walking away from it in disgust. So there, there's been a lot of manipulation here. There's been a loss of trust. And at the end of the day, the guy's not guilty. So, you know, hopefully at least the street can uh, retain its name. It's certainly there's nobody in Dundas, Ontario, that is uh, calling for a name change. And in London, Ontario, I don't think they're going to change their main street either. John Bass with us, publisher of the Bay Observer, talking about Dundas Square in Toronto and City Council, not aware of all of the facts. John, thanks. As always, much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. Uh, For more than 40 years, Canada's business political complex of interests have yearned to cash in big time by getting privileged access to China's enormous market and global economic heft. Now, with the nightmare of the two Michaels, well, in the past, Canada could be tempted to resume old patterns of China relations. However, it's important we don't. Canada must face the facts. Uh, China is now closed for business. And that is an article in the Globe and Mail from Charles Burton, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. And he is here now. Charles, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too, Charles. Great to have you in and the experience from uh, your work uh, abroad and at the uh, McDonald-Laurie Institute. Greatly appreciated over the years, and we thank you for uh, keeping that uh, tradition going. Um, You said China is now closed for business. What does that mean? What are you saying? How? Well, I think there are a couple of things going on here. I think that there has been a yearning on the part of those you know, as you say, a business and political elite who benefit from relations with Chinese communist business networks that we could just, you know, put that two Michaels thing behind us and go back to the pattern of giving China, you know, a buy on things like Uyghur genocide and espionage inside Canada and intimidation of of people here, particularly of Uyghur and Tibetan origin and you know, all of, and and of course, interference in our democratic process, uh, and uh, under a promise, which has actually never really been realized, of privileged access to China's huge market. Well, you know, we now have a public inquiry going on to find out what's been going on with regard to Chinese inf- interference in our in our past elections, and presumably that will lead to. Um, the people who are accountable for this to to be expelled from from our country, and I hope uh, a foreign influence transparency registry that people in the policy process who are recipients of benefits from a foreign country such as China would be required to declare that publicly. You know, we hope that'll all happen. But the other aspect is the Chinese economy is not going well. They they won't mm-hmm. publish the youth unemployment statistics. There's been a collapse of the real estate bubble resulting in a lot of people who put money into real estate looking at half-completed buildings that will probably never be built. 
and um, and uh, the you know there's deflation there, reduced demand, a flood of of capital leaving the country. In the National Post today, they noted. 90% of the foreign investment that went into China in 2023 has been withdrawn. And so it's no longer a good environment for business. And the government's attitude towards business in general, and particularly foreign business, has not been too um, supportive. So the idea that we can go back to the, you know, the good old days of China and hope that China will somehow by itself become a responsible stakeholder in global affairs, I think that that uh, way of thinking has pretty much gone, and and it's time for us to get with the program, along with our allies like the United States, Britain, and Australia, of trying to constrain China's international expansion and support for um, rogue third world regimes, and and uh, and hopefully try and see China become more accountable as a responsible member of the of the international world order and not a power that seeks to destroy it so that China can adopt, you know, can become the hegemon of of the whole mm. world. And of course, that project is probably not coming to pass if the Chinese economy continues to go south and they just don't have the resources to to do that kind of activity anymore. And obviously with that, less confidence in China, but are they closed for everyone or specifically Canada? How is our situation different from others? Well, I, you know, I think that we have tried to play both sides of the street, and we've, mm. you know, we've said to the Americans, you know, when Minister Freeland was down in Washington, when Mister Champagne was down in Washington, they talk about decoupling and friendshoring, but you know, we have tried to expand trade with China, while other countries like the United States are engaged in more sanctions to prevent the export of, of dual use high tech technologies that could be used in a future. A military confrontation with China, and have been much more active in in trying to um, uh, ensure that China's scheme to take control of the entire South China Sea and to annex Taiwan does not come to pass. You know, we are facing a situation where, with China's economy not doing well, that the government of China might seek to rally nationalistic support by engaging in military confrontation in the region. And, you know, I think that Canada would have to be uh, involved in that. We really can't, you know, pretend that we're neutral or that we support it. But practically speaking, we continue to have the same sort of economic relationship with China that we've had over the past 30 years. I, I just, you know, times are changing. And I think the Canadian government's been a bit slow to get with the program. Once the golden goose, not so much anymore. Well, I mean, certainly that's the case. I, you know, we hear too many reports of foreign businessmen who get into some dispute with their Chinese partners and then find the Chinese government won't let them leave the country until they've yeah. done what China wants. And increasingly, the government is trying to to impose more of this kind of Leninist state control, and they're not supportive of individual enterprise and foreigners taking profits out of China the way that they were before. So, you know, the general, the goose, I guess, is is uh, is no longer in the no longer available for us to to uh, to exploit. And you know, any idea that we can put money into China and get big profits out is rapidly becoming. Uh, unlikely, if not uh, completely impossible. 
Is Canada in a holding pattern here? Because it appears like we are. I mean, the allegations of election interference date back uh, a couple of elections. There's an inquiry, but, you know, we're hearing watered-down versions of that. Um, many asking about a foreign interference registry, and, uh, you know, and, and yet the environment minister is talking about a national plastics registry. I mean, is, is any of this resonating with the powers that be? Well, uh, you know, so far, like, as you say, the government has decided that a standalone foreign registry is complicated. And and one minister said it wasn't going to happen. I mean, that's, you know, other countries are adopting these as a method Mm -hmm. to discourage people from taking money secretly from a foreign government. And then, you know, naturally, if they want to keep receiving that that, uh, benefits, uh, having to support the agenda of that government inside Canada. So, you know, it's pretty much a no-brainer, and the fact that we're not doing it suggests that there are a lot of people, uh, you know, maybe influential, eminent Canadians who do not want the fact that they've received benefits from a foreign uh, government made known. But with regard to the uh, to the foreign, um, you know, the inquiry into China's interference in our democratic process, so far indications are not looking too good. The the judge has made some decisions uh, with regard to who has standing. And who doesn't, which suggests um, maybe it's going to turn out the same as the David Johnston one, which is nothing hmm. to see here. Everybody move along. But it's too soon to say, you know, and uh, and we can hope that it'll be the, the game changer that it should be in bringing these issues to the fore and, and um, really making it necessary that any government that that receives that report will take the necessary measures to get the Chinese spies out of Canada and to make it clear to China that we're just not going to tolerate attempts to influence our democratic um, election process and other democratic processes by a a hostile foreign power. You know, it seems like a no-brainer to me, but as you say, you know, there seems to be a lot of hemming and hawing and delaying and and obfuscation there that, uh, that suggests that maybe the government is not going to do what Canadians really want them to do with regard to China. Charles Burton with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, his latest in the Globe and Mail. Canada must face the facts. China is now closed for business. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Take care, Scott. Over the course of the global pandemic, which, I don't know, when three years ago, I guess, coming up this March, so two months from now, uh, it would be four years um, that all of a sudden, boom, everyone was uh, told to go home in the next couple of years. I don't need to tell you what the story was. And we did a, a feature on this show uh, in the first hour where we would uh, dedicate that to um, businesses. And it started out with hospitality, restaurants and such, and people doing curbside and all that. Remember all going through all that and trying to just get them more help and more exposure and how to keep everybody afloat while everybody was staying inside. Then it moved to other retail and other businesses and such and, and kind of went from there. Um, we certainly know that after that, uh, loans came out and such to try to keep businesses up, but those are all coming due. And we're hearing more and more of uh, small businesses that have had to close their doors. And Cafe Lemoncello closes after two decades of business on Ottawa Street North. And, um, you know, it's one of those signs of the times of where we are with affordability and uh, the economy and inflation and such. Let's bring in Nancy Leo, General Manager of Cafe Lemoncello, with us now. Nancy, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing well. Tough decision for you. 
Yes, it was very, very, very hard and very, very sad. And many cries um, trying to come to that decision and making that decision finally. How do you make that decision, Nancy? Well, unfortunately, it comes down to finances. Um, You try to keep it afloat. You try to keep people employed as much as possible. Uh, You try to do some advertising. You try to drive the industry a little bit more. But it's getting hard. uh, And it was hard. It still is. I don't think we're out of the pandemic um, right now as well. I know people Mm -hmm. say that we're out, but I don't feel that. We're probably looking at another two years. Uh, And people aren't going out as much as they used to. Um, With uh, rising interest rates, um, people are still kind of scared. People working from home uh, obviously don't go out as well. Um, So that's like a a really tough call. Um, So things just slowed down. Um, And unfortunately... For us to be open for another two years to get that recovery time is just financially not feasible. So we made so that decision. At, yeah. So at one point, you're just trying to get by day to day and how to keep it all open. You're not going to be sure what the fallout of this is until after it's over. And now you've just got to the point where you don't see a future. You don't see you rebuilding this in the next year or two. No. Um, we would have to put more money in than we already have. And yeah. um just constantly digging a hole. Um, and as you said, there's the finances on um, the SIBA loan that's due. That's a factor. There's lots of little factors. It, it, it did help out in the beginning, but it never recouped itself properly. Um, is, is there anything more government could do to support you, Nancy, or is this just the environment, the climate has changed? I think it's a bit of both. Um, the government could have did a little bit more, but even if they did, I don't think the outcome would be any different. Um, mm-hmm. People's mentalities have changed over time um, as well. Um, it's not really the norm anymore. It's a new norm, um, and we just have to accept that moving forward. Uh, no one can ever anticipate a pandemic ever happening, and we wouldn't know how to react to that until we're actually in one. So that's are you of su- are. Are you surprised, Nancy, because many thought when this was over, you know, it's like the Roaring Twenties, and I guess did for a little bit, came out and and whooped it up, but then, you know, obviously finance has caught up. Yep, uh, we all thought that it would come back. Uh, I was very optimistic um, a year ago today type of thing that, oh, yeah, it's going to come back within the year. People are going to go back to the normal routines, um, and things are going to get back. And obviously it didn't, um, obviously with the... Um, with it, with the interest rates rising and mortgages and so many things happening to people, the money isn't there for them either. So it's not really their fault. Yeah. Um, it's just the way things kind of go. What do you learn from all of this, Nancy? Um, always be optimistic. Be proud of what 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 you've achieved. Um, it's a great community. Love Ottawa Street. Grew up on mm-hmm. Ottawa Street. My parents are immigrants. So is my husband. He's an immigrant from Italy. We you know we grew up in this area. We love it. Um, and I will always keep coming back. What's next for you? Um, right now, um, not too much. Uh, we do have a bakery just down the street, Simply Italian Bakery. That was another project of ours that we started out nine months prior to the pandemic. And it's a totally different vibe. Um, and we're doing okay over there. And uh, it's just a different thing. 
Mm. Well, Nancy, so, thank yeah. you very much. Thank you very much for sharing your story. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there, entrepreneurs that are going through or feeling the same thing that you are. But uh, good sure. to see uh, other things have kept you going. Nancy Leo with us, general manager, Cafe Lemoncello, closing after nearly two, K, uh, two decades in business on Ottawa Street North. Nancy, thanks so much for the time. Good so luck. Good luck. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. According to a new survey, nearly 44% of hospital workers in Hamilton say they dread going to work and a similar amount are on the verge of quitting. Uh, we've heard that of a lot of industries in a post-pandemic world. Certainly nothing to the extent of what our poor healthcare industry has been going through. Uh, this on behalf of a poll conducted uh, for CUPE Ontario, CUPE's Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. Joining us, Sharon Richer of CUPE, representative with the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions and here now. Sharon, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you very much for having me today. So, Sharon, you know, we, we remember during a, a pandemic world, we saw the, uh, you, you know, the weak links in the in healthcare, and and we all vowed once we got through this that we were going to make changes to strengthen the healthcare system and make sure we didn't, uh, you know, burn people out and get to exactly where we are now uh, in the midst of a global pandemic again. And then post pandemic, we saw the prime minister meeting with the premiers, and it looked like things and solutions were beginning to be found. What happened? Did we ever get there? How did we get from that positive post-pandemic uh, uh, experience and in, in, in attention to where we are now? Well, unfortunately, um, O2 has conducted a uh, recent poll with Nanos um, with our members about their working conditions and their mental health and their confidence in the future of public health care. And um, it is pretty bleak. Um, as you were saying, you know, 44%, so that's uh, two people in five people are considering leaving um, their job over the next year, which is very, very, very worrisome. We have um, other stats that say, you know, healthcare workers are having, 62% of them are having trouble sleeping, 44% of them are dreading about going to work. And 54% of them are feeling anxious. And this and these um, mental health effects are affecting, you know, their family life now. And they just don't have anything um, left to give the system, which is very, very, very troubling. Uh, I understand that, Sharon, and, and a lot of people would agree with that, and, and many people are feeling that. That's not my question. My question was, way back at the beginning, when when we were coming out of a post-pandemic environment, we saw the, the flaws in the healthcare system, and, and premiers and, and, and the prime minister got together, and we were moving forward to fix that. So what happened after that? Why are we still where we are? We know how they're feeling. We've got that message. But how did we get to, we're going to fix this system to, my goodness, you know, like a year or two later after the pandemic, we're still dealing with this. Yeah, we're, we definitely have a recruitment and a retention problem. I mean, this year's budget only provided an extra 0.5% um, extra money into healthcare when in real terms, they're facing 5.6% inflation costs. So, you know, hospitals are really struggling 
around meeting needs financially. We have our healthcare workers who are overworked um, and, you know, uh, just looking at, you know, all of these stats, people are, you know, being very alarmed. They're very dreaded about what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, we're in the midst of bargaining with the Health Ontario Health Association and um, we're actually trying to put in some places where we can help them. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to talk to them about, and we have been discussing with them, is creating patient and staffing ratios. So that, that would mean that there would be less work um, for patients, um, less work for our nurses. The patient outcomes would be better for them. And, uh, you know, this would definitely have a... Sharon, are you there? Yeah. Sorry, I, I am in a parking lot, and I think they're cutting in and out. Can you hear me now? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, I'm good. So let me ask you this, Sharon. Um, um, you know, obviously, we've got the challenges within the healthcare system, but it seems like we've got a couple of problems here in a, in, you know, in a post-pandemic world that have just developed over the last couple of years, and that or, or things that have been exacerbated over the last couple of years, and that is uh, a, a vast increase in population and obviously a shortage of family doctors driving more patients to emergency wards and, and that sort of thing. Have you and have you noticed, have your members noticed that uh, the increase in population just overloading the system? Yeah, people are aging. People are coming to the emergency department. Currently now we see more and more uh, hallway medicine. We're asking the government to increase uh, 8,000 beds into the, uh, into the healthcare system. We're seeing the problem here. We're seeing um, emergency departments in various communities uh, closing for periods of time. So, you know, people aren't able to get the health care that they need. All right, Sharon Richer with us of QP, representative with the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. A new survey, nearly 44% of hospital workers in Hamilton dread going to work and a similar amount are on the verge of quit- uh, quitting. Sharon, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It seems we've been talking about a recession for a bazillion years, and I'm not sure what's worse, and we'll ask Eric Cam this. Is a recession worse or thinking that you're in one for the last couple of years? Uh, just rip the damn Band-Aid off. Uh, some ec- economists are saying that Canada will be hit harder than other nations if, in fact, we do get one, which is two quarters of negative growth. Eric Cam with us, uh, Eric Cam with us Professor Economics, Toronto Metro. Metropolitan University and here now. Happy New Year, Eric Cam. Scott, Happy New Year. Nothing but good health and happiness for you and your family. Back at you, pal. Seventy-two uh, percent, according to a Leger poll, uh, concerned that we're in a recession. Man, we've been talking about it for what seems like a hundred years. I'll ask you, what's worse, being in one or thinking you're in one for several years? Makes you wonder what the other twenty-eight percent are thinking. But the reality is, <laughs> is that it's an excellent question. And if you believe in expectations theories, they're the same thing, because people will build expectations into their functions for their coming year. So when they're thinking about consuming or saving or investing or big ticket purchases, they've already factored that information into their minds. So the reality is it's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
One of the best ways to put an economy into a recession is convince people that we're going into a recession, and that'll, of course, drive it into a recession. So the answer to your question is, they're kind of categorically equal, other than that silly definition about two quarters in a row of having negative GDP growth. I mean, that's all fine. But if you're one of the people that can't afford your mortgage or food or clothing, nobody gives a damn about Statistics Canada and their definitions, Scott. Why are we still talking about this now? This was chatter even a couple of years ago when we were exiting uh, the global pandemic, and then things were supposed to take off and appear to for other countries. But Canada seems to be spinning the wheels here. Yeah, and you know you got to feel bad a little bit for this small open economy because we're really at the whim of much bigger nations and much bigger economies. And so now is a really dire time if you want to spend your days dredging up macroeconomic variables and statistics, we got some trouble coming. I mean, because they're really on the big ones that you look at, like the labor statistics, the employment statistics, GDP statistics, consumption statistics, saving statistics, they're all very muted. And in fact, they're all at about zero trending down. And so right now, as a Canadian, it's hard to pull on something and say, well, there's your silver lining. And as we were discussing Uh, on that email article, right? There are three big topics right now that just cannot be ignored from this country. Mm -hmm. The first is is what I just said, which is if you believe in those numbers, there's no way to avoid a recession. And I've said, A, there is no reason to avoid a recession because we're in a recession. I don't, frankly, all due respect, give a damn what Stats Canada tells me. It's like love. I know when I'm in a recession and we're there. (laughs) Number number two, I'm in love too, but don't tell my wife. She'll kill me. Number two, um, secondly, population growth is too high right now. Our government is using immigration as a growth status. Now, as a human and out of the closet, as a Jewish person, you cannot be against immigration because every Jewish person came from somewhere. But immigration does not work as a growth driver. And that right now is one of our government's only growth drivers. And that's going to fail immensely because we have population far outweighing job openings. And number three is the Bank of Canada. And they've been open and honest that they're not going to sleep until that inflation figure comes down to 2% come hell or high water. And why would anybody expect them to move off that point? So unfortunately, for, for macro theorists right now, and parents and, and, and anybody living in this country, Right now, we're looking for something to hold on to, Scott, and it's kind of impossible to find. Uh, That being said, and, you know, we are pretty flat, but inflation is cooling. So is that not working? Is that not moving in the right direction? Surprised to hear still the chatter of a recession when we have that figure. You know, the problem is, is that I could take a lot of numbers and play games with them and present to you anything I want to present. So it's okay that the bank and the government says, look at the inflation statistics. They're way down. But that's including a vast number of goods in that basket. If I removed all of the things that I would call extraneous and left in fuel, left in home heating costs, left in food, left in rent, mortgage, interest, inflation's not down that much. Inflation is down because the Bank of Canada uses a measure that reflects it being down. But between you and me, Scott, and the millions and millions of listeners in Hamilton, it's not down that much. And so they're playing a dangerous game where they do want to bring the number down. 
but they don't want to bring it down so fast that people start spending like crazy and we get back into the same trouble. But frankly, I worry about that much less. That should only be our problem. Our big problem right now are the 60% of people that still have to renegotiate mortgages. What's going to happen when those people face the new interest rates? Obviously, as you said, inflation down, prices aren't because they went up quite a ways before they started to level off. Are we worse than other countries? Is there something more we could be doing? I don't really know what more we could be doing. I don't. I mean, I, we could go back and spin the wheel back a couple of years and I got my hair back. I think I'd want to do it slower. I mean, I've said I think we had to bring the price level down, but I really think we did it super fast. And I thought that that was to the detriment of hardworking Canadians. There are some things that this country can never fix. One of them is that it's small. And two is that it's dependent upon other nations who are also feeling economic effects right now. So I'm in a funny position. I don't love what the government's done or the speed that they've done it. But if the government called me tomorrow and said, "Okay, where's the magic lever? What do I pull to fix this thing? The answer really isn't there right now. Economics is cyclical. What goes up must come down and then it goes back up again. And we just have to wait for a positive cycle for growth and a gross domestic product. I would slow down. I would take off the carbon taxes. I would do anything we could do right now to increase people's disposable incomes. But Scott, you and I both know our federal government has shown no propensity to want to do that. Uh, talk of the Bank of Canada rate, uh, Bank of Canada and its interest rates over the course of the next year, 2024. We've heard the U.S. say yeah, there could be up to three cuts over the course of the year. Um, Bank of Canada not quick to play that hand, but still lots of rumors floating around that that may happen. If we're chatting like this, Eric, is there is is there any chance of that? I mean, why would you lower rates if we're still in economic hell? You wouldn't, and they're not going to. And they're not going to lower them two or three times over this fiscal year. That's never going to happen. Not in this country. I'm sorry. That's just, it's fantasy. And I hope people never believe economic fantasy because I don't want anybody doing their budgets and getting their family situated in a world of fantasy. If there's going to be a rate cut, it will be at the very end of the year. But I'm not sure there's going to be a rate cut at all because I don't have a crystal ball. But I know this, if we don't put some growth drivers in place, and we keep thinking that immigration is the holy grail, you're not going to see that number come down in 2024, Scott. Is it about cutting or managing our finances? Where's the growth? We need more growth, do we not? Of course we need growth, but our government doesn't do anything to stimulate growth right now. It is heavy on taxes. It's heavy on its net zero policies. And let me tell you, some of the government's policies are fine. And if we were in an economic boom, I would say, let's go. That's the time to clean up the environment. The problem is you've got far too many people one paycheck away from insolvency who couldn't give a you-know-what about net zero. And I'd like to see those people have anything helped to help that their disposable income should go up. Disposable income is easy, Scott. You either raise their income or lower their taxes. And since raising their income is pretty hard, we've got to work on lowering the taxes that people face every single day. But not to be repetitive, our government right now has shown nothing to that. In fact, they keep rumoring about increasing taxes like the carbon tax and why they want to do that and punish Canadians is beyond me. Eric Cam with us, Professor Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, recession or not, it's up to you. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Stay healthy, Scott. You may have started to hear about the list. 
again, uh, as it uh, appears in media, social media and such. And, and what we're referring to is the life and times of Jeffrey Epstein and, and, and specifically a, a list of 150 names linked to him. Uh, apparently, Bill Clinton is reportedly uh, one of 150 John and Jane Doe's whose names are expected to be, re- to be revealed following a, r- a ruling by a U.S. district judge. Uh, what this all means moving forward, let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He is here now. Reggie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Reggie, uh, how big a story is this? Why are we talking about this now? Why were we not talking about this way back when? Well, I mean, look, it's it's a big story in that you named a couple of reasons there that social media is abuzz with this uh, list that's expected to be released at some point, possibly today or in the next couple of days. And the reason it's being talked about is because um, some media outlets have picked up on the buzz that's coming across social media. But it's worth pointing out here, Scott, that, well, this list is coming out. Much of the reporting um, that's been done over the last 24 hours about this list um, suggests that this is not going to be scandalous. This is not going to feed into the frenzy that some uh, media outlets, particularly those on the far right, have been pushing, and that the vast majority of names uh, that are associated with this list are names that have already been uh, made public. They have been discussed in hearsay. They have been brought up uh, in in court proceedings um, against Ghislaine Maxwell that are already mostly publicized. And the only names that will be redacted are those of uh, victims uh, who have said that they do not want to be um, put in the public realm. So what are we going to see? We're going to see names. Is it going to be salacious? I mean, that that's that we have to wait to see, but most of the reporting suggests no. What does it say if a name appears on the list? Is that bad? Is that good? Does it, 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 it could it be completely not involved in this case with Epstein at all? What what does it say if your name is on the list? Sure. Uh, From what we understand, if the name is on the list, it means that there was an association with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know, over a set number of years. And you had mentioned Bill Clinton's name appears a number of times. Well, from what we understand from from the Clinton's legal team, uh, Bill Clinton flew uh, on uh, on Jeffrey Epstein's plane uh, many, many years ago uh, in and around 2001 uh, to a series of nations throughout Africa when Bill Clinton was dealing uh, with a portfolio having to do with HIV AIDS. Uh, and then, you know, his name, or at least according to the Clinton legal team, uh, you know, the connection was severed sometime around 2005. Uh, and whether or not, you know, Bill Clinton is linked any further than that, you know, is something we don't know. Some of the names are going to be repeats. Uh, some of them are simply going to be associates of Epstein or former employees of Epstein or, or people who may have been in the realm of him. Again, uh, you know, we have to wait to see what this list actually shows. But again, the reporting suggests that this is simply going to be a rehashing of, of what most has been already put public via a, a variety of different ways. So would that suggest, Reggie, that the names are not relevant to the Jeffrey Epstein case? Well, I mean, look, that's 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 a question that, that a lawyer would be uh, better able to answer yeah. here. But I mean, the information that's coming out here is part of a 2015 lawsuit, much of which has already been publicized, has already resulted in the jailing uh, of Ghislaine Maxwell, um, and has resulted in a series of lawsuits that have already been settled, including that from Prince Andrew, who settled the lawsuit against uh, uh, several years ago. So, you know, 
that there will be importance here because there are a series of unanswered questions regarding uh, the life uh, of Jeffrey Epstein and particularly what took place uh, in the residences of Jeffrey Epstein, including on, uh, on, on a Caribbean island here. So this could provide some context, but there's a real risk here that this also provides um, you know, uh, an outlet for, you know, outlets who want to use this as some kind of salacious or scandalous attempt to go after other people. Um, you know, it's, it's going to provide answers, but it also unfortunately could provide, um, you know, more of that non-newsworthy buzz that's been floating around social media for the last couple of days. Is there anything here, Reggie, to suggest there's criminality or just obviously embarrassment to have your name on this list? Um, well, I mean, is it embarrassment if the name on the list happens to be a former employee, uh, a former employee of Jeffrey Epstein? I mean, that, that's that's an open question here. Um, you know, I, I think that that ultimately this is simply going to be what the media uh, has tried to make it out to be. And it's 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 going to it's going to release a handful of names uh, that are a part of an ongoing investigation. But, you know, any other other kind of question like that would be better posed to a, a legal expert. Uh, will uh, the release of these names give any explanation as to how they were involved with him? In other words, exp- explain any relationship. Yeah, and and that's what we understand from the reporting here is that when the names do come out, it will um, you know show what what the relation may have been. And remember, some of this is going to be former employees. Some of these are simply going to be people who are in the realm of Jeffrey Epstein. And when we go back to someone like Bill Clinton, whose name has been repeated ad nauseum by several media outlets. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's been uh, named so many times. Uh, again, there were relationships with Jeffrey Epstein that existed far before the allegations and accusations were made public. Uh, you had the right. Clintons at one point in the early 2000s talk about um, the, the philanthropic work and and the, the you know the being a financier. Um, you know the great work that they had said Jeffrey Epstein had done. You know that's going to come up in investigations. Those names are going to be brought up over the course uh, of lawsuits uh, and, and of court hearings, particularly the court hearings that were brought forward by one of the accusers of Jeffrey Epstein. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. We didn't even get to talk about Donald Trump. We'll do that next time. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, we have certainly cha- uh, talked a lot of late in and around affordability issues, uh, in and around the strain on healthcare systems, and and uh, as well as the housing crisis that we're in. All well, we hear that uh, Canada's population has really gone uh, skyward since the pandemic, and uh, up to 1.1 million new arrivals in Canada this past year alone. Um, many are concerned that that, uh, although Canada obviously um, um, a country of immigrate of immigrants, uh, I'm first generation Canadian. Uh, my mother came here from another place. Most did. Uh, that being said, uh, although supportive of immigration. At what point do you tap the brakes uh, if you start to see the strain on health care and the housing crisis that we are in? Uh, and many are pointing to universities, colleges, specifically colleges who have made scads of money in the last little while, uh, bringing in students with a path to citizenship. Supposedly, let's bring in Earl Blaney, regulated Canadian immigration consultant and policy researcher, founder of Study to Stay and the Canada Network, and is here now. Earl, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Scott, thanks for having me on. 
So the immigration minister says the the system has lost its integrity. What are your thoughts on on what we're seeing and and the amount of international students coming in, which doesn't seem to balance? Well, uh, doesn't balance, I say, would be a dramatic understatement. I'm glad the minister Hmm. has uh, recognized finally uh, that there's a huge integrity problem with the system. Put it this way, Scott. Ten years ago in Ontario, we 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 hosted t- about twenty thousand international students. Now we're at about a hundred thousand. Um, nationally, this has increased about thirty percent per year since twenty fifteen. The total numbers there are well over nine hundred thousand, probably closer to a million international students. So there are a lot of good points that come with international students coming. I'm a huge uh, proponent of bringing in international students especially uh, when they are getting something out of it and when Canada is in return getting something out of it also. So win-win, let's say. Uh, But that certainly is not what's happening. Today, also, Ontario colleges, out of the 24 public Ontario colleges, half of them now have more international students than domestic students. So, I mean, the the numbers have exploded. There's uh, tons of evidence to suggest that international students are being favored in admission processes over domestic students, which is an issue that will hit the news soon, if not now. Uh, but I mean, there are a lot of problems with this. As you pointed out in your intro, the main reason international students, particularly at the community college level, are coming to Canada is not because the community colleges or private colleges in Ontario or elsewhere are you know, uh, of phenomenal quality or anything like that. I mean, they go to the United States for thing for England for, for, for that venture, but they are coming here to try to obtain permanent residency. In 2022, we brought in 550,000 new international students. The idea is if you're an international student, you come, you study, you get something called the post-graduation work permit, which allows you to work post-graduation, earn skilled work experience, and qualify for, for permanent residency through that work permit. 550,000 came in in 2022. How many got out through the post-graduation work permit to become permanent residents? The answer to that question is 5,000. We're talking about we're talking about 10%, less than 10%, sorry, uh, 55,000. So we're talking about less than a 10% success rate. Unbeknownst to them when they are being sold these tickets by education agents overseas, right? So that's my concern in a nutshell. So they are these are basically third party um, th- third party organizations that are the liaison between the student and the college. Is that accurate? Well, no, not quite. Actually, that's how it used to be, and I'm way more comfortable with that arrangement. A college yeah. reaching out, contracting an agent overseas, educating the agent, getting the agent on board, uh, scrutinizing the agent, reviewing their processes, uh, and signing them on. But actually, that's not what's happening anymore. What's happening now is colleges throughout Canada have outsourced their recruitment to these uh, huge companies called aggregators. I won't specifically mention names, but everyone in the industry knows exactly who I'm talking about. And these aggregators sign a recruitment contract with the college and then sublet that on their own accord to up to 10,000 unlicensed, unregistered education agents abroad. So basically, uh, to become an education agent, all you have to do is sign up with an aggregator and you get to recruit international students to Canada. And that's what's happening. And that's why the volumes are exponentially exploding, because everyone's an education agent. Everyone's making money out of this business. Yeah. Mm. So clearly, this is getting out of hand, Earl. What is what is the solution? What needs to be done here? Well, I think the government of Canada, I mean, I like to give credit where credit is due. I think Mark Miller, um, his idea 
to kind of uh, clamp down. So, I mean, there is a jurisdictional issue here, right, uh, under Canadian law. So education is the jurisdiction of the province and federal government handles uh, parts of immigration, so do the provinces. So how do we control who gets to study in Canada? So Mark Miller seems to have, uh, you know, vetted his legal ground and said, look, we are going to start curtailing this at the federal level through our immigration powers and the Constitution if the colleges don't step up and act uh, more responsibly. And by more responsibly, I mean, like, stop increasing the volume by 100% per year, which is exactly what's happening in some cases, right? And, and there's no communication between the colleges and the cities. Uh, Fanshawe College in London is a great example of that. Uh, they increased international enrollment by 26% in 2022. The price of rental, uh, rental um, affordability, uh, rental costs in London increased by 36% in the same year. Right. And mm. then there's clear evidence that there's no communication between the city and Fanshawe. They don't feel like they have to say anything to, to the city. This is going on across Ontario, uh, Brampton, Toronto area. I mean, it, it, it's really tough. No one's blaming international students for this, nor should they be. I, I don't think what they should be doing are blaming the colleges for this irresponsible behavior. What we have to do is start limiting the volume of international students coming to Canada. And that's what has to happen, unfortunately. So, yes. Earl Blaney, regulated Canadian immigration consultant and policy researcher, founder of, of Study to Stay and the Canada Network, talking about the mass influx of international students, which is creating lots of situations in communities across the country. Earl, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. Developments coming out of the war in Gaza and the uh, killing of a Hamas leader. What does that mean moving forward? Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and here with us now. Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. So a uh, Hamas leader is killed in Lebanon. There's been lots of talk of worry of this war spreading. Who is responsible for the death of this Hamas leader? Do we know? It's highly likely that it was Israel. They have not admitted it this uh, directly. But, uh, for example, the head of the Mossad said that anyone who was involved in the horrific massacre of October 7th basically signed his own death warrant. And we know that Salman al-Aruri, who was the deputy leader of uh, uh, Hamas, was certainly involved uh, in uh, that uh, massacre. He was in charge of Hamas in uh, the West Bank. He believed that he had immunity by being in Lebanon. He was able to travel to Turkey and elsewhere. But the rules of the game have changed since uh, October 7. What about repercussions, retaliation? What's liable to happen next, the uh, the next shoe to drop? It will depend a great deal on, on Hezbollah, uh, and that is Hezbollah's leader, leader, Nasrallah. He made a speech today where he condemned Israel. He claimed uh, that it was Israel who did this and that uh, Israel would be held uh, responsible. Hezbollah has a vast arsenal, perhaps as many as 150,000 rockets. They are even more dangerous than uh, uh, Hamas. Uh, various countries from the United States to France have tried to dissuade Hezbollah from getting directly and fully engaged, although there is already significant fighting with Israel, and Israel has had to evacuate tens of thousands of its own citizens from border towns because of fire from Hezbollah. And so we'll have to see 
uh, with Hezbollah, which believed that it could grant immunity to other terrorists, uh, but that they will now proceed further. I think it's very risky for them. Some uh, members of the Lebanese government, uh, which is very weak, it's largely controlled by Hamas, nonetheless uh, have suggested that they do not want to get into war. They are looking at Gaza, and they know what the consequences would be of uh, direct war with Israel. So this is a very tense situation. Uh, it also will depend a lot on Iran, because we must not forget that uh, not only is Iran the world's largest uh, supporter of terrorism, but Iran directly controls Hezbollah. They also have had tremendous influence with Hamas, uh, uh, to whom they have provided both money and armaments. And they are also influenced with the Houthis, and the Houthis are firing on ships uh, uh, mm-hmm. in the Red Sea, causing tremendous navigation and commercial damage. What is the strength of Hamas now, considering this has been going on since October? Um, do you see Palestinians separating themselves from the Hamas terrorist group? Because that seems to be what's agitating the West. It's not so much uh, Palestinians versus Israelis, uh, Muslims versus Jews, left versus right. It's democracy and freedom versus authoritarianism and terror. Are we making that distinction? It, it is a very important question that you're asking, because in a way, uh, whether you look at Ukraine and whether you look at uh, Hamas and other terrorist groups, what we are seeing is a situation where tyrants and terrorists are testing the resolve of the West, the resolve of the democracies to uh, stand by their principles, to uh, have the willpower to defend themselves uh, uh, effectively, whether it is Israel or whether it is uh, Ukraine against uh, Russian aggression. And in the case of Gaza, it's a slow process. Israel has made very significant uh, progress in northern Gaza. They have apparently destroyed something like 12 of the battalions that Hezbollah has had. But it is a difficult process because contrary to Hamas propaganda, Israel is not uh, bombing indiscriminately. If they did that, this would have been over uh, many, many weeks ago. So it is done painstakingly. The Israelis are taking uh, losses because uh, they cannot just uh, use force anywhere where there are civilians. Hamas, according to the United States, according to intelligence services in Europe, is using the Palestinian population as human shields. And as the major democracy said at the beginning of this conflict, it is not only that Israel has suffered. But, in fact, Hamas has been a tragedy for the Palestinian people. The words that were issued by the Quint, the five major democracies, was that Hamas has brought nothing but bloodshed uh, and tragedy to uh, the Palestinian people. Uh, U.S. intelligence confirming what Israel has already confirmed, that uh, there was a Hamas command center in the hospital that was bombed by a rogue missile way back when, that in fact there was also possibly hostages that were held there. Does that resonate with anyone? Does that help the cause? It resonates with with governments, but uh, uh, what has happened with, uh, sad to say, some of the so-called progressive forces, they uh, have such an intense dislike of the United States, such an intense dislike of Western uh, government, such an intense dislike of Israel. They tend to have this binary approach of uh, what they designate as victims and uh, 
and uh, victimizers that uh, they will uh, uh, try to defend uh, whatever Hamas does, even though these progressive forces would be destroyed by Hamas if Hamas or these terrorist groups were in charge. Uh, I think in the case of many people who are not uh, so ideologically rigid, there is some progress, and there is word that even in Gaza, uh, support for Hamas is falling. We have anecdotal evidence because it's very difficult to do a proper survey, but anecdotal evidence suggests that people understand what is at stake. And uh, uh, there was one quote from uh, a Palestinian in Gaza who said he'd rather have the Israeli Defense Forces there than Hamas because they have seen uh, what uh, uh, terrible uh, things Hamas has brought to them even before uh, this attack and, and this war. But it's a slow, slow process. And this is where the the patience, the willpower, the endurance of democracy is tested. This is where Putin is sort of hoping that the democracies will tire, that there's a kind of fatigue, that Ukraine will be abandoned, that somehow Hamas will uh, survive, that there will be a long-term uh, ceasefire, and they will reconstitute themselves. And that would be a terrible outcome, not merely for Israel, but it would be a terrible outcome uh, for the Palestinian people and for the region. Will Israel, will Israel beat Hamas? Will they drive them out of Gaza? So far, it seems they are doing it, but they need to retain Western support. If uh, the United States uh, uh, abandons that support, uh, uh, if uh, the funds that uh, so far have not been approved by Congress for Israel and for Ukraine, those are uh, withheld. If the Biden administration decides that uh, you know, political expediency is more important than principle, and so far they haven't done that, uh, then it would be very, very difficult to finish Hamas off. Uh, but I think uh, if we look more carefully at what is happening, very significant progress has been made because uh, I would think over half of the forces that Hamas and Islamic, Palestinian Islamic Jihad had have already been destroyed. The estimates are that uh, uh, of the total casualties that have been reported, something like 22,000, over 8,500 are actually Hamas uh, and uh, Islamic Jihad terrorists. Uh, that, given that the total numbers before would have been 35 to 40,000, that is a very large number. And in military terms, it's impressive. But what happens with these kind of groups, it's not over until it's over. We saw that with the fanatical forces, uh, whether in the case of militaristic Japan or in the case of uh, Nazi Germany, and then the collapse comes very suddenly at the end. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Arl, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. Scott Radley is coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I am well, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. Uh, fire in a tent uh, encampment and uh, like uh, $500,000 in damage. Uh, two people rescued there. Uh, is anybody surprised here? I remember in the summer when we were coming up with rules and regulations, rules of engagement for tent encampments. Is nobody thinking that winter's coming and it's going to get really cold? And there's going to be a need for heating and, and what, like, this is just, 
this this problem is just getting worse. It's not getting better. We are going to be talking, uh, John Paul Danko, a counselor, was uh, on social media today talking about this and had some interesting comments that we're going to be talking about. But yeah, it's, it, it one of the words he uses uh, was toxicity. This issue has become so toxic that it's become almost, imp- according to him, uh, almost impossible to figure out what to do. Because if you clear people out, there is a segment of the population that says that's outrageous, that's hateful, that's mean-spirited. These are people who have no place to go. If you don't clear yeah, them where out. where do they go? Then if you don't clear them out, there are people who say, but you're allowing then people with addiction and mental health issues to be behaving in ways like, thank goodness, Scott, thank goodness there was nobody who died in this fire yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, this could have been a very different story today. Today we're talking about simply a scary situation. We could have very easily been talking about a tragic situation. And if that had happened, and I, I mean, look, I, I, I am, I am praying that this is never a discussion that we really have to have, but if somebody had died last night in that fire, Scott, what is the discussion today? What, why are we not, and we talked about this before, field hospitals went up left and right during the uh, yep. middle or the beginning of the pandemic. Why can we not provide something that's a lot better to help people through this self-inflicted wound? Because if you don't build, you create a, a shortage crisis, which is exactly what has happened here. Housing right across the board. Don't, don't dull this with talking about affordable housing, because if you don't build it for the middle class, you don't build it for the people hoping to join the middle class. So at the end of the day, uh, uh, why not something like that rather than heading, you know, into the winter and saying, well, we can just keep people in tents all winter. Okay. So Scott, I think there's two different stories here at play. And one of them is that you're talking about the building and I agree with you for the people trying to get to the middle class, but I really believe that the story that we're talking about with encampments often gets disguised or described as a housing issue. I believe that in many cases, this is a mental health and addiction issue first. We're, we're, and part of the reason it's Well, that's what creates, that's what creates homelessness. But if you don't have enough homes for people, if you don't have enough supply, that just aggravates. That's like people saying, well, you know, it's not just, we haven't built enough houses. It's the fact there's a supply chain issue. It's the fact that interest rates have gone up. It's the fact that like BS, it's like this, it's like the health system. If it's screwed up before a, a tragedy, before a crisis, it gets even worse during a crisis. And that's what exactly what has happened here. And again, if you don't build enough of anything, it certainly doesn't get built at the bottom end. So is it your belief then that if we had fully enough available houses, there would be nobody living on the street? I believe that yes, if there were houses for that. everybody, that there that. would not be people. There would still be a homeless issue. There would still be needs for places like mission services. There's always, always, always going to be a need for those to help those that need a hand up. But there's a difference between a small amount of people that need a hand up and a gigantic amount of people that have fallen through the cracks post pandemic. And again, I'm talking about if, if, if we're saying that the people who have addiction and mental health issues would simply, that their life would simply be fixed by giving them a house. I think housing is important, but there As are I far just said, deeper you know, issues. There, there, 
there's stories in your paper of people who have n- led normal lives and found themselves oh, no out on the street. No disagreement. There's always, there's always going to be a segment of the people. You know, we're never going to save the world. There's always going to be trouble. That is life. However, this has gotten uncontrolled. And it's uncontrolled because we haven't done enough in all sectors. And again, if you don't look after the middle class, you ain't looking after the poor. But I don't believe, sadly, I don't believe that the people who the vast majority of people who are living in encampments are simply displaced middle class people no, who I suddenly can't that. pay their no, mortgage. I agree with that. I agree with that. And in a post, and let me clarify: in a post pandemic world, we've seen a great increase in mental health issues that need to be yes, addressed. Yes. absolutely, absolutely. And I but think, if and my point is, if we're you overlooking can't, if that. You, if I, I agree, you know, I see what your point is, and I agree with you hundred percent. But if we can't build for those who can pay for it. We can't build for those who can't. And that's exactly and that's exactly what's happening. And that's my point, Scott. There's two stories here. There is the there are the people who are simply homeless who would be eager and capable of getting a home if it was affordable. I agree with that. There's also the other one. We are lumping everything into I think in a lot of cases, everything into homelessness. And there are people within that category that have far deeper issues that are way more complicated and way more difficult to resolve. So we simply say, well, give them a home and everything's fine. That's no, not no, always I the understand. case. No, mental health issues will always be a problem. Mental health issues will always be a problem. That is no excuse not to build anything, whether it's affordable housing for those who are in need or those who are trying to merely be the middle class. It's all related. I'll leave it at that. You can continue it after six o'clock scott radley thanks for the time have a good one thanks for listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com that's it for us thanks for listening as always we leave it to you the taxpaying customer to have the last word this one from frank g who emails you all must you already must know that light travels faster than sound that is why some people appear bright until you hear them speak keep right except to pass 